Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hey there, everyone, and welcome back to another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. This is Veronica here, your host. And today I'm excited that we're going to talk about the impacts of psychology and culture in the mediation of accident cases. And I'm super thrilled for today's guest. Today's guest is Bruce Ally. And I will say, I think he's pretty much the perfect person to be talking about this, this topic. Uh, so a bit of background information about Bruce. He is a principal at A Place for Mediation, Inc. He has over 25 years of experience as a mediator and has completed more than 4,000 mediations. Bruce is one of the instructors for the Lawyers as Negotiators program at Osgoode Hall Law School, where he specializes in the courses section on culture. He's also a senior consultant at the Workplace Fairness Institute and certified to provide services to the government of Canada for mediation, arbitration, counseling, and workplace restoration. And I should add, he's got some pretty amazing educational credentials. I won't list them all, but I'll just highlight a few. Um, he's got a master, among others, he has a master's in psychology at Vermont College, an LLM in ADR at Osgoode Hall Law School, a PhD in counseling, and he's currently in the middle of completing a PsyD at California Southern University. So with that, Bruce, welcome to the Mediate.com podcast, and thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Veronica. I am delighted to be here with you today. Yeah, this will be great fun. Well, so I'm so excited to have you on today's episode. I know that, you know, I've mediated some accident cases. I imagine many of our listeners have. And I know one of the things that can be an issue in mediation is just getting good information on the table about, you know, assessing the severity uh, of one's injury, right? And so I know that, you know, you wrote an article that was recently published on mediate.com just about how ambulance usage is not a reliable indicator of the severity of in injury in a motor vehicle accident case for several reasons. You know, I remember in that article, you mentioned things like cultural conditioning you talked about the impact of adrenaline on pain. And so I'm just wondering, can you start us off just by talking a little bit about that? Happy to do so. Let me begin, first of all, by taking us back to why we all entered the field of mediation. And I would venture a guess that there wouldn't be too much dispute around this, that we all wanted to help. We all wanted to create a level playing field so that anyone coming before us could experience justice without hindrance, irrespective of what our orientation was, whether it was law, it was psychology, it was whatever the case was, social work. Um, we all wanted to make sure things were fair for everyone. From that perspective, again, irrespective of the approach we chose, whether it was um, transformative, it was collaborative, it was evaluative. We still wanted to have a process in which people were empowered and fairness occurred. And therefore, for that reason, it becomes important when folks are before you, specifically in a motor vehicle accident. And given that we live in a very multicultural world today, where people from every diaspora is in our every walk of life, that we ensure that what we think they mean is what they mean, and what they say is actually what we interpret it to mean. And therefore, from that perspective, 
Um, processes run differently for everyone. No one would be surprised if I said, well, if we were in China, we'd be doing things a little differently here today than if we were in, for instance, Tasmania. Of course, that's very natural. But from that perspective, if we think about transposing that to North America in general, although in all fairness, I must tell you that I'm speaking more from a Toronto base, but there is extension to all of North America, and we can get into that in a bit. Um, people have different cultural expectations. So in some countries, you will meet people who never go to a hospital, except they're absolutely dying. That's whether it's due to the proximity of the hospital, it's due to the lack of resources to get there, or it's due to the medical cultural conditioning. So from that perspective, if and when one of those folks is involved in an accident, the first question is, does the fight or flight reaction kick in and do they fall back on their own known patterns? Do they then say, okay, well, gosh, I'm not dying, therefore I don't need to go to the hospital. Second part of that is, even if they are from a culture where attending a hospital is a prerequisite, so for instance, let's say they were from England or Scotland, um, the issue of ambulance attendance may well become, but I dialed 999 as opposed to the 911 that's been rolled out across North America. So culturally, their conditioning was a different set of numbers than we have. And they dialed that in that fight or flight and emergency response mode. So it, they didn't access it. Of course, there are also practical reasons why people do not attend, and those would include the financial cost. There was an article and, in fact, a broadcast on the TV uh, not too long ago about a woman who was involved in an accident who begged not to be taken to hospital by ambulance only because she couldn't afford the cost. So um, culturally, there are several reasons, but from a cultural, and again, it depends on how you define culture, because culturally, of course, the poor might define themselves as a culture too. Um, so it could apply that way. It could also apply to a culture as in an ethnic culture, and it could also apply into a, as a culture from a specific region, even though they speak the same language as us. So those are some of the variables that apply in that instance in terms of cultural conditioning. But the second part of that is irrespective of which culture you come from, what happens in an accident is the fight or flight response. This is a basic response that happens to us all. Um, Hans Selye has written a lot about it in the relax relaxation response. And this is something that's been known for quite a while. You are faced with a threat and your imminent uh, surges in energy are directing you towards how do I survive? Do, is this an enemy or is this a friend? Do I run or do I stay? That fight or flight is caused by a spurt of adrenaline being secreted. Adrenaline, of all things, has a very masking quality. So 
irrespective of the fact that if you and I had an accident or if you and I fell, we'd feel different levels of pain based on our, our own pain threshold. The issue then becomes when that adrenaline kicks in, how much more will that spur it so that we do not feel the effects of the pain. And then as a result, we undervalue or underestimate the degree of injury. And if of course we do not feel we're very injured, there's no need to call an ambulance. Um, except we're saying that by and large, everyone in our society just wants to make money off of accidents, which I don't believe. That's not to say that a few people will not manipulate the system, but perfection doesn't really exist. Who's to say that, you know, in any system that wouldn't happen. Having said that, the reality is based on that adrenaline, it may be one of the deciding factors as to why people do not um, you call for an ambulance because they, they don't feel the pain. The other part that's not so clear around that is the whole part of shock that attends the trauma at the time. But having said that, I think I've answered that piece of your question. Yeah, so that's all very interesting. And so I was just thinking, I mean, knowing what you know about, you know, cultural conditioning, and I think I've, I've heard you um, mention the phrase that, that culture is personal, right? And I'm thinking about phrases like, you know, stepping in someone's shoes and, um, and also just knowing how adrenaline mass pain I mean, when you are mediating a motor vehicle accident case and you see that someone is relying on ambulance usage as an indicator of severity of injury, I mean, how do you, how do you reality test that assumption as a mediator? I mean, do you find yourself kind of sharing um, this sort of information about cultural conditioning or, or the impact of adrenaline on pain? Like, how do you handle that? Well, there are a couple of things. First of all, um, you need to know that indeed, this is a significant problem. Um, why? For instance, I'm calling some statistics from Toronto, 2019, there were 400,000 people who called 911 pursuant to a motor vehicle accident. Of those 234,614 were transported to hospital via ambulance. And um, what that actually says is that 41.35% didn't call, which is a significant amount when you think about it, it's fairly close to 50%. Now, if this were only a Toronto problem, we, we could say, well, you know, it's only Toronto, that's an anomaly. But really and truly, um, according to Sabet in 2016, um, with respect to global motor vehicle accidents, the World Health Organization cites that one, more than 1.2 million people each year are killed in road traffic accidents and 20 to 50 million are injured by these accidents. So this is a significant amount. And if you're trying to get fairness, if you're trying to create a wise agreement, a level playing field for all, then it's important. It's just as important to ensure that the person who's making the claim is treated fairly and not judged 
based on a circumstance that may have been beyond their control at the time. It's not hard to know if people are relying on the use of ambulances only because you will hear either side, be it the plaintiff side or the defendant side say, oh, the accident was so severe that the client had to be, or the patient had to be transported to the hospital. Or it was so small that the person did not even use an ambulance to get to the hospital. In which case it then behoves you to talk with that person around, can you tell me what else was going on at the time of that accident in order that you get a perspective for what was occurring. Because if it was like most of us in North America, that person was caught up on a treadmill of trying to, gosh, I got a rush from here. I got to pick the kids up from uh, school. I got to drop this child to piano lessons and that child to soccer. And really they are so focused on that and the responsibilities that they have heaped on them, as well as the expectations that they need to fulfill, that in itself may have been a driving force for why they chose not to go to the hospital. Um, and many times you will have people say, you know, I couldn't at the time, I just had to make it into work. I got to work, I started feeling sick. You know, of course, at that stage, they missed that opportunity for the ambulance. And that means we need to look at whether the ambulance is truly a dictating factor with respect to that. And based on the statistics I've given you, 41% of people that didn't use it, 41.35 to be exact. Um, and we need to remember, even within that statistics, that and the statistic in Toronto, 400,000 people who call the ambulance, that doesn't include people who chose not to report, right? Either because it was a minor fender bender or they, um, didn't have insurance or they preferred to settle it out to court by themselves so that they didn't have an increase in their premium. So it's, it's actually a fairly high statistic. It actually is concerning and it's a reason we need to look into and get proper information with respect to what injuries the person suffered. No insurance company wants to cheat anyone out of their rightful due. The other side of that is how do you actually present your facts in retrospect, especially if you have no knowledge of how the system is cleared? So that is the catch-22 that many people find themselves in, you know? So with that said, I think um, by speaking with the person and finding out what was going on and truly understanding why it is they opted not to use the ambulance, and talking and trying to convey those messages to the other side so that there is a clearer understanding because there's an assumptive logic around everything. So if the other folks do not know, they cannot help but feel. Remember, man is a, a, a sensory machine. We have to make sense of everything a meaning-making machine. So if we don't have a reason, we fill in a reason on our own. Oh, they didn't go. That's because they weren't really heard. Not because the defense counsel is a bad person or has bad intentions. 
But if you've got viable reasons that you can share with them, of course, by and large, most reasonable counsel will listen to that. Why? Because if not, it'll come up later when it gets to trial. And if that can be substantiated at trial, it clearly impacts the defense's position. And defense is, is not selling, but on the other hand, they don't have a crystal ball, right? So by providing reasons, by deconstructing parts of it, you allow for understanding and therefore uh, move easier towards resolution. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, I was just sort of thinking as you were sharing that, I mean, this sort of highlights the, the impact that mediators can really have on the mediation process just in terms of shaping the conversation and shaping what sort of information gets put on the table. And I guess as I'm sort of thinking out loud, I mean, this is really just sort of a, a plug for kind of the telling the stories phase of a mediation, just um, being mindful about you know, asking targeted questions, you know, especially in a motor vehicle accident case, now that, you know, we know more about just the impact of cultural conditioning and um, the impact of adrenaline on pain. Yeah. And I guess another thing I wanted to ask you about, so I understand from, you know, one of our, one of our prior conversations, um, you were talking about how uh, memory when we experience trauma, um, how our memory may not always be as accurate as we think. I think you referred to it something called um, sequential memory. Is that right? It, it, it was indeed. Okay. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that? So I'm going to get into that in two seconds. Um, let me just pick up on where you left off by reminding us, if we are trying to create a fair, a wise agreement, it behoves mediators. And even though mediators may not have the ability to impose a cure or render a decision, um, they can be very instrumental in facilitating understanding that goes towards resolution. Um, statistics clearly demonstrate the viability of mediation to the point that it is becoming more and more widely used every single day um, in many, many realms not just in Canada, not just in the USA, England, all over Europe, and many other countries. But that said, you are now asking about memory. One of the fundamental constructs that people have in their heads is that, or a public construct, is that memory is stable and permanent. And it provides an accurate recording of an event that has occurred. Take yourself back for a minute. Imagine that you're driving. You've got your thoughts about what you need to do and how your day is going and what else you need to do because we're in North America. We, none of us have the luxury to say, oh gosh, I have so much time. I don't know what to do with it. We're all caught up in and driven literally around trying to find time to get everything done. So. Here you are, you're driving, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone crosses your path or comes directly towards you, and boom, an ensuing accident occurs. The suddenness of that in itself is impactual. 
Um, according to Nadell and Senator Armstrong, memory is broken into several parts. Each part is stored in a different part of the brain. Um, there are four sections of memories. There's sensory memory, there's short-term memory, there's working memory, and there's long-term memory. And in terms of that, the storage places include the sensory or the visual stored in the occipital lobe at the back of the brain, the, uh, the ionic memory, uh, the auditory or temporal lobe behind the ears, the kinesthetic memory, um, in the motor cortex of the brain. Now, in the storage of that, storage happens at different times for each specific response. I have no doubt that you've seen um, lightning and thunder, and you've seen one happen before the other. That's because they're differential speeds of perception. The same thing happens with human beings. Speed of light versus the speed of sound versus the same physics applied. The universe doesn't create new um, methods of physics just for us. It's the same principles. Um, and therefore, they're stored at different times. Compounding that is the fact that in itself, the memory is a trauma. So our ability to grasp and understand what is going on at the time may differ. We all have different processing speeds without being elitist in any way. Someone who is a teenager still in the process of processing things and learning may not process as quickly as someone who's got a doctorate. Uh, on the other hand, someone who is very knowledgeable about computers may process quicker than someone who is older, even if they have a doctorate without the knowledge of computers. So there's a familiarity piece that factors into that. There's the suddenness piece that factors into that. And there's the speed at which it encodes that's factored into that. So when you ask the person to recall, these recollections come from different parts of the brain. When that's happening, what ends up is you get different pieces happening. And depending on how it was encoded, as you perceived it to be happening at the time, Oftentimes, you will get a person recalling or giving you back a memory that differs significantly from how witnesses, eyewitnesses saw it. And that's not because they're lying. That's because of how it was stored in the brain and how it's being recalled. No. So, indeed, we need to factor that into our thinking. Over and above and beyond that, the whole process of re attempting to retrieve sequential recall is usually done when it becomes contentious, by and large, when that person's been sent to a doctor to examine them, not their usual doctor, because they've developed a rapport with their usual doctor. They've developed uh, compensatory mechanisms that allow the doctor and them to communicate and understand each other's nuances. You're going to a strange person. You don't know this person. They don't understand how you speak colloquially. They don't understand your cultural 
impact or how you convey things from a cultural perspective and their job is to determine something that by itself can enhance or slow down the rate at which the recall occurs and it can again be traumatizing because if you're going in with the view that this person's only here to say that I am fine and I'm totally recovered, even if I'm not, then that impacts your ability to recall. Um, more important uh, or added to that is the fact that oftentimes in these cases, surveillance is used. And we all know, dependent on the day, people involved in a motor vehicle accident will feel different. There are some days you may feel so good, you may think, gosh, there's nothing wrong with me. And there are some days you can't get out of bed. Some of this may be weather dependent, some of it may be uh, realistically attached to how much exercise you've done or what kind of, there numerous factors that impact that but the whole thing is based on that you may again portray a different recall based on how you're feeling that day so you go into the doctor and you say to the doctor gosh you know i feel not too badly and this is how i saw it and it's one of those good days and the doctor writes oh well this person's fine and recovered you leave the doctor and then it gets cold and rainy and you're vasoconstriction occurs so that the circulation is not as good anymore in your body and you start feeling pains. The same doctor uh, seeing you would not pick up the same message. So you, again, you can't blame the doctor. It in part is more of how we have developed a process around assessing this. And that process, unfortunately, may, may need a little bit of refining. Hmm. So knowing, knowing what you know about, you know, how trauma impacts memory, I mean, is there anything that a mediator can do during mediation to help someone accurately recall their memories? Because I know, you know, I'm thinking back on my own mediations of motor vehicle accident cases. I mean, part of the mediation is, is talking about the accident and the impact afterwards. Um, so is there anything that mediators can do to kind of overcome, you know, the, the, the impact that trauma has on memory. So, so one of the things is, I don't think that you're going to change specifically how it was recalled. Um, but oftentimes, due to litigation neuroses, people go in with the view that, oh, you're making a claim and it's certainly motivated by gain as opposed to honesty. Um, so one thing to do to try and tease out some of that is to not be judgmental of the person. And it's interesting because in part, mediators are not supposed to judge. But by and large, um, heuristics cause us all to judge all kinds of things without paying attention to them in our high pressure society that we're in. Um, secondly, uh, if you can try and talk to the person around what was going on at that time and get a view for how 
they were feeling at that time, you might get some inclination as to what else was going on. And hence, that may give you a better perspective of, gosh, they had all of these things happening. This is why they're recalling things because there may be a flavor of how it's tied in, the suddenness of the accident, et cetera, if you get an idea of that. That again, we'll talk about processing time, you know, as opposed to, oh, I was stopped and I, in my rear view mirror, I could see this guy coming for about a minute and a half towards the light. That person's had a little bit more time to be prepared and to start bracing themselves and getting ready versus a person who all of a sudden this person turned, the light changed green, I moved off and this person came shooting through the lights. I didn't have a chance. So the, the speed at which it occurred, the time factor and the lapse that's in between also speak to how the person is able to encode that and how they can then re-relate it to you. And based on that, you may be able to then, if they've had sufficient time, try and get some sense of, here's what the witnesses are saying and get them to see perhaps how some of their thoughts may have been distorted, not necessarily to convince them that they're wrong, but to have them cognitively reinterpret what they saw based on the suddenness of the accident. That's interesting. And the thoughts that were coming to mind is, I mean, I think the, the takeaway for mediators then it sounds like is, you know, be aware of these things, pay attention to the detail in mediation and, and ask questions to learn more, right? Well, if you don't, Veronica, my question is, are you creating a wise solution? In as much right. as the whole point in mediation is to level the playing field, if you haven't got the full picture, you're operating blindly. And really and truly, in itself, Having the full picture is one of the tools in the armor of a mediator that allows him or her to make the process transparent and to facilitate resolution. Absolutely. I love that phrase, get the full picture. Well, Bruce, this has been a really, really fascinating episode. I feel like I got a really good introduction to um, psychology and, and culture and um, you know, the impact of, of trauma on memory. Um, this has been fascinating. So thank you. Thank you so much for uh, being on today's episode. And in case any of our listeners would like to connect with you to continue the conversation or learn more, um, how can they find you? Well, um, I, I suspect you probably at some point will give my number, but if you needed me to, I could. Um, more than that, they can also access me on the uh, web. You can simply Google Bruce, A-L-L-Y, or A Place for Mediation, and you'll get us. All right, but very if good. You, if, very you, good. You, if you needed the number, it's 416-967-9432. All right. Well, cool. Well, cool. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for being on today's episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you ever so much for having me, um, especially on a topic as important as this. And if the need arises, I'd be very delighted to work with someone like you at any time, as you know. Well, awesome. Likewise. 
All right, friends. Well, that wraps up another episode of the mediate.com podcast. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by mediate.com. For more information about mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.